Sister Act uh, is uh, a movie that my daughter and I refamiliarized ourselves with last night. Uh, she was excited to get into the music. She loves this series uh, and, and familiarizing herself, learning for the first time a lot of the music that uh, we celebrate in Bible on Broadway. And uh, th this story is many things. There's many different themes, but at the heart of it, and what I want to touch on today is a theme of purpose. Um, because Dolores uh, Descartier uh, is this nightclub singer who uh, is not living her best life when we meet her. She is singing at a mediocre casino in Reno, uh, and she's in this little trio uh, that does Motown covers, and she's trying desperately uh, to be noticed and to be appreciated, and she's singing in front of chain smokers and gamblers who just could not care less that she is there. Um, and then through a series of events, she ends up put in witness protection um, by the police, and she ends up in a convent with the name Sister Mary Clarence. And she meets the, uh, the Holy Mother, the only nun in the convent who knows the full truth of why she's there. And the Holy Mother is played by Professor McGonagall. Um, if you know, you know. And perfect casting, perfect casting. And uh, she doesn't want her there. Uh, she thinks it's going to go poorly, but she's reminded of her uh, promise of hospitality that she took as a nun. So Sister Mary Clarence is meeting uh, the, 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 um, the other nuns, the other sisters in the convent for the first time over a meal. And it's there that she is served in this full habit that she's itching around, and I can understand that. Um, she served this bowl of what looks like goop, right? And she immediately goes, ooh, I'm not eating that. And before I share what comes next, I want us to hear a word from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 5. Jesus is teaching his disciples, disciples meaning more than the 12. This is a crowd of people um, in a message that, that comes to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he's talking similarly to Sister Act, basically the same thing. Um, he's talking about purpose. Uh, he starts out with this litany that we call the Beatitudes. You may be familiar with them, um, but it sounds like blessed are the blank, right? And he does this litany of blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And it's, it's very poetic. Um, and... Jesus is quickly going to turn from poetry into um, pragmatism and like how do we live as Christian people. And to link those two ideas, uh, he talks about salt and light. These metaphors that aren't meant to be taken super literally, but are also helpful metaphors in understanding who we are and why we are meant to exist, how we are meant to exist as people of faith. He starts out in chapter 5, verse 13, saying, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. So Sister Mary Clarence is looking at this bowl of goop, and she's thinking, I am not eating this. In fact, she says out loud, what, what, you guys eat this stuff? You know, and the other nuns are going, yeah, it's fine, you know. Um, and then the Holy Mother says, Sister Mary Clarence, perhaps I think you might enjoy a ritual fast. And then Whoopi Goldberg, of course, says, oh, no, I, I really don't think I would enjoy that. It just needs a little salt, she says. And then she salts her meal. Um, I love to cook. Uh, and one of the worst insults you can give a cook, if I ever serve you food at my home, please don't reach for the salt shaker, right? Because that tells you what, that the, the food is under season. Salt is not something that we want to taste necessarily unless you're eating a classic potato chip. Most of the time, 
Salt in cooking is there to enhance and bring out the flavors that are already present. Everything else is made better because of the salt's presence. And, and if you can tell that it's missing salt, really what you're telling is that it's missing some key flavors in, in the dish. Dolores ends up realizing that perhaps her role is not meant to be center stage, but over time she begins to see she has gifts to offer the convent, at first through the gift of music. She's a talented singer, and the choir at the convent is not. Um, at least not at first. They are kind of haphazard. Uh, to be fair, their longtime leader uh, isn't exactly leading well at this point. And so Dolores shows up to choir rehearsal and ends up leading them. And the song that we just listened to here in worship is the song that is their first performance in church. And it's, it's what uh, sort of changes the culture and community there at the convent, Dolores begins to listen for and bring out the voices of the different singers in her choir. There's one singer who's real mousy and doesn't even like to speak up, and she ends up becoming the soloist. There's other singers that she helps them to find a more helpful volume um, for their voices. <laughs> and, and when they sing the song that we just heard, it's like such a wonderfully 90s movie thing that happens next, right? So they're, they're getting into the, the sort of Motown version of that Maria song, and, and then it, it changes from seeing inside the sanctuary, then we look outside. And there are these, you know, 90s street kids in their leather jackets and their hair that is up and colored and different, and they're just walking around at 10.30 on a Sunday looking to do no good. Let's go smoke some cigarettes, 90s kids, and um, <laughs> because they weren't up until 2 a.m. the night before and still somehow up at 10.30. Don't worry about any of that. And they hear the music, this really hip Motown music in the 90s coming out of a, a stodgy-looking cathedral, and they go, let's go inside. I, I mean, I wish evangelism was that easy. Um, <laughs> They go inside and immediately like the folks, there's like 15 people that attend this massive cathedral and immediately like, yes, come on in, welcome in, you street urchins, right? Um, which is how church people always behave to new people who are different than them. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's funny and it's true, my friends. Um, so that's, that's not really the way that it goes in, in the real world. Um, but it's what happens when we allow the salt uh, to come back into our own lives and we allow our saltiness to also affect the lives of others. Salty in a good way, not salty in a grumbling way. Um, because saltiness to me is about recognizing that while, yes, sometimes my voice can be important, maybe I'm the mousy one that needs to learn how to sing out and, and, and the choir's missing the solo because the right person isn't singing up yet, and maybe that person's me, or maybe, maybe, my role is at times to uplift the voices of others, to step out of the spotlight and center stage and instead consider how I could help to uplift or amplify the flavors and the voices of those around me, the ones who either can't be heard or, or need to be heard. Um, you know, we live in a, a day and age where individual platforms, personal platforms are more easily accessible than ever before. I mean, right now I could hop on my phone and I could go on any number of social media sites and drop my thoughts about whatever's happening here or in the world and someone in a different hemisphere can immediately see what my brain thinks about that. That's kind of wild when you think about it. Centuries, even decades ago, in order to have that kind of a platform, you would have to have an enormous following like Jesus with his crowd of disciples, or you'd have to have a lot of money and power and, and privilege. And nowadays, it's just a finger click away. 
And yet, I wonder if the faithful option here, in the midst of the cacophony of voices, is to not think, well, how can I just scream louder than everyone else around me? Um, but maybe it's about how we can help other voices to be heard, help the choir harmonize a little bit better so we don't end up in painful, distorted echo chambers. I wonder what a Christian position and response is in a season like this. I think salty people want to see the flavor enhanced. They want to see everything in the dish work better together. They want to see the things complement one another. So then you sit down and you have a meal that is memorable. Um, have you ever been at a meal that was memorable for the wrong reasons because it was under-seasoned? It was really bland and tasteless? I have because I married someone from Kansas. I love you. I love you, honey. I love you. Y'all, she makes fun of me like every Sunday at her church, so I can say the same stuff. If y'all don't know, my wife is a pastor. She doesn't go here. She's a pastor in Canada. No, she, uh, she's at... <laughs> She, she's up the road at another Methodist church. And um, anyways, so God bless her family. They are from one of the rectangle states. And um, the first time I sat down to a meal with them, I, I swear, guys, it was like you go to the paint store and you're trying to decide between like beige and like half beige, like <laughs> eggshell. Like it was just a plate full of that, like the, the neutrals you paint your home before you're going to move. Like that's what my plate looked like. And I, and I got up to look at their spice cabinet, and I kid you not, it was like salt, pepper, and like a 15-year-old thing of Old Bay seasoning. Like, that's all they had in there. They didn't have any cayenne. They didn't have any chili powder. They had, not, they had no paprika, nothing. There was nothing happening there. And I thought to myself, I've made a series of terrible mistakes in my life that let me know what I've become is the cook for her family. They love when I show up because they know Scott's going to cook for the week. And they're like, wow, what is this? I'm like, it's the spice aisle at the grocery store. It's incredible. <laughs> um, anyways, when it's under-seasoned, if, if we don't, um, if we think that as Christian people, our jobs are simply to stay in the background and to, and to never impact the world around us, then I think we're wrong. I think what we end up with is a plate that is severely under-seasoned. People of faith, I think, are, are meant to have influence and impact on the world around them that heightens the flavors, but doesn't, doesn't just make up for a pile of salt. No one wants to eat a pile of salt. Um, when it's seasoned correctly, it, it can be a really memorable thing. I wonder if you think about those moments in your life where the meal felt seasoned well. I'm, I'm moving beyond the literal and into the metaphorical now where maybe there was a sense of, of community or a sense of equity or a, a sense that, you know, um, I, we're hearing the voices we, that need to be heard. We're including the people that need to be included. And that's, I think, what Jesus is calling us to be about as Christian people. He's looking out at a mass of people and saying, every one of you is important. We need to hear and see and touch and taste each other's flavor. Um, salty people heighten the flavors of others. And over-salted is inedible, under-salted is flavor, flavorless, but properly salted is memorable. Then Jesus keeps going, and he starts talking about light. Matthew chapter 5, picking up in verse 14. So before we're salt, and now we're light. You are the light of the world, a city on top of a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand that shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. So 
this is one of those teachings that at first you're nodding along. You're going, okay, be a light. Be a light. Be a city on a hill. Great. Like, be, be, be out there. Uh, be public. Uh, you know, live out my faith on my sleeves. Got it. Got it. Got it. And in, a, in the next chapter, though, Jesus is going to do what Jesus always does, where he says something that at first sounds contradictory, because he says, oh, oh, uh, remember when I said to be a light also, when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees, because they go out on street corners, and they pray really loudly, and when they fast, they make sure everyone can see how hungry they are, because their spouse is from Kansas, and they, and when you, <laughs> funny, it's, they're little jokes, friends, um, when, when you do these kinds of spiritual practices, don't take that out into the streets. Don't take that out into public. Instead, do that in the quiet. Do that in the personal space. And you're like, Whoa, wait, but you, ju- you just told me, Jesus, to be a light. You just told me to be a city on a hill. In fact, you said if I cover that up, if I make that private, then I'm like snuffing out the flame, like I'm radically messing up. So, so which is it? And this is where, my friends, I think we have to remember that faith is, is not monolithic. You cannot sum it up with one Instagram post or one Bible verse. Like there is nuance here that I think Jesus is trying to communicate. In the Wesleyan tradition, in the Methodist tradition, we talk about this idea of holiness. And holiness is simply a, a word that we use to mean living, in, living righteously and justly in the way that God would have us, right? That, that may be a word that is loaded for you, has baggage for you, but in, in a Methodist context, holiness simply means living rightly before God, living in a way that brings God joy, as we sing about this morning. Um, and we divide holiness into sort of two parallel tracks, what we call personal holiness and then social holiness. And I see Jesus talking about these two types of living, these ways of living rightly that are distinct from one another, even though they are moving in the same direction. He says personal holiness, those things that we do that really are about our own heart, our own spirit, our own soul, our own relationship with God, maybe that is prayer and meditation or uh, scriptural study in your own personal time, or, or you fill in the blank here, those personal journaling, whatever those personal practices are for you that help to uh, enliven your soul, help connect your soul with Jesus he's, and with God. What he's saying is you don't need to go out to the street corner and get a billboard that says, I prayed last Tuesday. Someone get me a gold star. Aren't I awesome? Well, we do this. We do this. I mean, I do this. I'm a pastor. Pastors are super guilty of posting our sermon prep Instagram. If you're not friends with pastors, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you are friends with pastors, you know what I'm talking about. It's the, and I'm guilty of this. Someone's going to dig this up in my old feed, and I'm already embarrassed. It's the Instagram shot of like all the books that are going into my sermon, and you're like, look, look at all the words I can read. Look at me. The sermon will be the greatest one since the one on the mount. It's the best, the best one ever. Um, we, we do this. We, we act like Pharisees and go out to street corners and try to proclaim how awesome our personal holiness is. And Jesus is saying that's, that's really kind of missing the point. Like that's the stuff that you should do with humility, that you should do personally, that really if you're trying to make other people see it, you're kind of missing the point of that. It should be about you and God. But then he says there's this whole other side, this side that is meant to be salty and meant to be bright, and that's not the scripture study, that's not the prayer, it's what that stuff leads you to do, right? It's that when we say social holiness, we mean the kinds of things that have always been, as Jesus calls them, good works. He doesn't say, let everyone see your prayerful faces. He doesn't say, let everyone see what a good Bible studier you are. He says, so that everyone may see your good works, and in Jesus' tradition, that Jewish tradition, those good works were very consistent throughout the Hebrew Bible. 
It was justice and righteousness in the public square. It was food for the hungry. It was money for the poor. It was rights for the marginalized. It was welcoming in the stranger and visiting the sick and the imprisoned. Like, that's what good works means. It meant that then. It means that today. And Jesus is saying, if you think that you can be a faithful person and simply stay in a quiet room and read the Bible and connect with God personally, and that's all this is about, then you're missing the point. You need to be salty. You need people to taste your presence around them. If that's not happening, you're missing something. You need to be light. The people in your community should know that you exist. The question we ask in the church all the time is, if this church closed tomorrow, would anyone in our community notice? And we're always trying to make that a more loud and resounding yes. So when they begin singing the Motown version of Maria uh, and those 90s street kids come into the church, the choir takes notice and they go to the Holy Mother and they're like, we could open up the gates to this place and we could like, I don't know, radical idea, like connect with the community and try to do some good stuff out there. And the Holy Mother's terrified because she feels like her back's against the wall. This convent is close to bankruptcy. She is terrified of what all the, you know, corruption outside is going to do to her sweet nuns inside the cathedral. And so she pushes back at first, and then one of the nuns says something that will just always stay, stay with me. She says, uh, as I find it in my sheet, well, anyways, I don't know. I can't read. My, my, where, where did it go in my notes? Kathy, is it down there? It's not down there, Kathy. Why did you take my page away from me, Kathy? <laughs> she says, Holy Mother, we can do more than simply pray for them. And I was like, oh, man, right? Because I got to say, as a pastor, there, we do a lot of praying. And I think praying is important. I think it's a central part of who we are as people of faith. And I also think that churches have a tendency to get so focused on what's happening inside that we forget there's a whole world outside that doesn't just need our prayers, but it needs us. It needs us not to show up and be a pile of salt and a floodlight so that people are blinded and they can't taste anything, right? We've been around Christians that are like piles of salt and floodlights. I've been that before. Um, but I think the world does need people of faith to step in seeking to flavor enhance and seeking to shine lights in the darkness. Jesus calls us to let piety live in private and to let mercy live in the streets. So after the nuns, they went over the Holy Mother and she reluctantly relents and allows them to get a work in the community. There's another, it's just like one of the most 90s movies ever. There's another wonderful 90s trope and it is the montage. It's a montage. It's the best ever. It's like two minutes where like everything just works, right? They're, they're doing their community garden with the street kids who suddenly love tomato plants. And they're like learning how to break dance, kind of, not really. And, uh, and like suddenly in a two-minute song, like San Francisco is cured of all that ails it, right? They're like, jobs are up. Housing's great. Like, it's awesome. The nuns fixed it. Yay, montage. And, 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 you know, it feels good to see that in a movie. Um, I think sometimes as people of faith, we get revved up by these first few verses of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're like, yeah, I got it. Salt and light. I got it. I'm going to go out and change the world. It's going to be awesome. And there are no montages in the real world. Like, nothing happens in two minutes, right? Nothing happens in 90 minutes. 
Like the, the montage feels good, looks good, and I think sometimes we exit the church into God's world and we are going looking for montages. We want to go and do as little as we can with the highest possible impact. And they'd be like, awesome, glad I fixed everything for you, Jesus. Glad we're on the same page. And that's just not the way it works. In the real world, what it means is stepping into a lifetime of what can feel like arduous, sacrificial work, and at other times is nothing but joy, and you could keep working forever because it just feels so right. And so I don't think the question is like, how can we go out and recreate a two-minute montage or a 90-minute comedy, but instead to ask ourselves the question that Jesus, I believe, is posing in the beginning of his sermon that says, what is the goodness, the good work, what is the goodness that God has called you to make your life about? Everything else he's going to say is going to maybe apply to you or maybe not. If you go home and you read the Sermon on the Mount right now, some of it's going to hit, some of it may miss, but the beginning, don't miss the purpose, the why. What is the goodness, the salt and the light that God has called you, uniquely you, to give your life to? And are you bringing that flavor out? And are you shining in the way that God has designed you to? Because that is what it means to be a person of faith. Everything else beyond that, everything else is window dressing. At the end of the day, it's about the why, the goodness that God is calling you to give your life to. Maybe you know the answer to that question. Maybe you're still discerning it. But don't leave that question behind. For Dolores, it required a change of environment and scenery. She needed to go from a, 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 a casino to a convent, right? Maybe in your life right now, you need a change of scenery. Maybe you need a change of environment because you're standing up on stage and going, what am I doing here? The chain smokers aren't even paying attention. Or, or maybe what you need is a change of posture. Maybe you've stood on center stage for long enough and it's time to consider if choir director is more the role for you. Or maybe you have quietly stood in the shadows and you hear that still small voice saying, would you please start singing? The world needs to hear you. What is the goodness? I will ask you for a third time. What is the goodness that God is calling you to give your life to? So be salty, my friends, and shine on. Amen.